we might as well go ahead and get started. Uh, looks like everybody's here that's going to be here, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. So if you have some other areas that you want to be involved with, uh, this is uh, time to move. But uh, anyway, what we're going to do today is talk about the surgical training program in Africa. And I hope that uh, you will catch some of the vision that we have for the organization and how we move forward. And before I start, I want to just say that uh, our executive director, uh, Susan Koshi, is here. She's sitting up here in the second row uh, to your right. And uh, be sure to catch up with her afterwards and find out some more of the particulars about how you might be able to get involved with the Pan-African Academy. But let me just give you a little bit of background about PACS, and then I'm going to tell you about why there's this need. I'm sure many of you know this particular global health issue need that's out there. And, uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the residency itself. First of all, I have no conflict of interest uh, with anything. I have no commercial interest with anything that is going to be presented today. I have really four questions that I want to address First of all, what is PACS? Secondly, why is PACS needed? Thirdly, what does PACS do? And fourthly, what does PACS need to go forward? And that's where you really can be very involved with that aspect of things, and I encourage you to look at these things and see how God is leading you in your life. First of all, what is PACS? PACS is basically a five-year general surgical residency training program of African doctors in Africa where we would want them to stay for a lifetime. The goal is to train 100 surgeons by the year 2020. Our program is basically it's very similar to uh, a European and American or Canadian curriculum uh, and is a five-year program like it is here. And uh, we go through all the steps. Ours is a little bit broader because we address uh, not only orthopedics, uh, urology, gynecology, and general surgery. So it's really a, a true general, old-time general surgical uh, definition, which is basically you operate on the skin and its contents. <laughs> so we're trying to establish these programs, and we want two board-certified uh, general surgeons. We're going to be, hopefully we'll have more that will come as the programs grow. Uh, we'll need more faculty involved. And uh, we also will want uh, specialty people to come in, anesthesia uh, and uh, orthopedics, uh, urology, gynecology. All of these things will be additions to our program. And we are hoping to eventually develop programs in those areas as well. Uh, we are already start, beginning to start one in uh, orthopedics. We have uh, one uh, that is already going where it's a pediatric fellowship after they complete their general surgical training. So we want to connect all Christian missionary uh, surgeons in Africa to, uh, together to work together, sharing resources and enhancing training. And we want our residents to go after they complete uh, they're trained to go to these uh, mission hospitals. And we want to certainly improve the quality uh, and uh, certainly the availability of surgeons in, in Africa. Uh, I'll show you some slides later about some of the 
uh, non-availability of surgeons. There's just a very significant lack of surgeons. First of all, PACS does have a board. We have a formal board uh, in which uh, we meet twice a year, and then we have uh, meetings uh, through phone meetings, usually through, uh, uh, you know, on a monthly, uh, not well, phone things are usually on a monthly basis, and obviously email, and then any specific issues that are addressed uh, will, will come up uh, for full discussion with the board. We do have, uh, we are a commission of CMDA, and we are academically affiliated with Loma Linda University. We thought it was very important to have that association with Loma Linda, and they come out every two years to review our program, to see what we are doing, how we are doing it, and whether we're getting better or not. They always give us a critique, and we try and make the changes that they recommend, and it just gives us a stronger academic uh, position with people that we're working with uh, in Africa. We certainly partner with uh, short and long-term uh, sending agencies. Uh, you've seen here uh, World Medical Missions is one of our major sending agencies it's for short-term uh, work, and we work with all of the long-term uh, sending agencies as well, uh, and they will come from uh, multiple uh, backgrounds uh, to work with us. And certainly we cooperate with MedCent. For many of you, younger people that are finishing residencies or just finishing medical school, you're worried about, you know, the debt that, that comes along with that many times and how are you going to pay that debt off. And I would encourage you to look at MedCent. Okay, great. All right. All right, this is our board. And uh, it's a nice-looking group of people. And uh, we have uh, all the specialties represented on this board. And uh, they, many of them come from academic uh, institutions. Uh, and so that they uh, will bring in a, a large amount of information about how to design curriculums and, uh, the, and get questions. We do yearly examinations uh, with our residents. And so uh, this is just part of our training process. But in addition to that, uh, they also take examinations for local societies and uh, regional societies, and I'll talk to you more about that in just a few minutes. But what, what about this issue of surgery? I'm going to address it on a global basis because it is very significant, not only in surgery but in every field of medicine. But let me just look at a couple things as far as surgery is concerned. Two billion people in the world have no access to basic surgical care. That's 2B with billion people do not have access. We go down the block and we've got all these doctor's offices all over the place. We've got hospitals everywhere around. Uh, we've got surgeons galore all over major cities. Uh, in my city, I'm in Houston, Texas, and we have probably one surgeon for every eight or 9,000 people. World Health Organization recommends that it ought to be one surgeon for every 20,000 people. And many countries in Africa don't even meet that. 11% of the global burden of disease can be treated with surgery, so that's a very significant amount. 
And while the uh, world's poorest third get only 3.5% of the surgeries performed out of 234 million surgeries done worldwide, the world's richest third will get 73.6%. That's a very significant number. So what you have is you have people that may die prematurely, but they may also be injured and not be able to perform any work. Uh, and, you know, that whole idea comes under this concept called dollies, D-A-L-Y. Uh, and, uh, they, and that gives you an idea about how, many, uh, how much problem there is because they may not be dead, but they're not functional. And so it's a really a, a very broad problem to deal with. So think in terms of surgery. We need anesthesia. We need infrastructure around us in order to perform our surgeries. There's some places, certainly uh, not in our programs, all of our programs have uh, anesthesia uh, care, but, but many of them do not. And the surgeon is actually doing the anesthesia as well. But what about a pulse oximeter? We don't have pulse oximeters in a lot of the hospitals in Africa. And as you know, that's, that's something that's really a significant standard of care that we all need to apply uh, in every place that we go. And they're really relatively inexpensive. They may be only about uh, $25 to $50, but people do not have them uh, in their hospital, most of the African hospitals. So look at, this, look at this slide as far as a world map, as far as some of the needs. The thing I want to show you is that particularly in Africa and in India, but particularly in Africa, there is the greatest need uh, for health care. There are a lot of people, and they're not getting care. And it's a huge continent in which people have to deal with. All right, other, other thoughts. 313 million surgical procedures performed each year. 6% occur in poor countries. Now, by poor, I'm defining that as those countries where the average person earns less than $100 a year. And that, that's a definition by the World Bank, World Health Organization as well. And then uh, 1 in 29 operations occur in low-income countries, LIC. So there's a global sh uh, shortfall uh, of many operations uh, per year. And uh, looking specifically at sub-Saharan Africa, 93% uh, of the people have no access to surgical care. And recently it was just uh, was reading an article, and there have been several articles addressing some of this issue about what about uh, religious organizations that provide health care on the continent of Africa. And the, the numbers really vary very significantly. It depends on how you collect your data, interpret your data, and everything. But probably uh, between 20 and 50 percent of the health care provided in Africa is provided by religious organizations. So it's so it's it's a lot, but not enough. But the problem is that the countries themselves are not contributing uh, to their own health care needs financially. What about trained specialists, trained surgical specialists? Look at this in the UK. For 100,000 people, there are 35. U.S. is the same. Japan's a little less. South Africa is seven. Look at uh, Bangladesh, 1.7 surgical uh, specialists per 100,000 population. Sierra Leone, 0 0.1. 
I'll show you a slide of one of our recent graduates who is in Sierra Leone who died from Ebola. But now out of ten surgeons in that country, there are only eight left because of the Ebola crisis. So in Africa, 20% of the world's land mass and over a billion people expected by the year 2050 to have uh, two billion uh, people. So the population is high. It has 24% of the world's uh, burden of disease, and Africa has 3% of the world's health care workers. So here's a real challenge for all of us. Look at this, 168 medical schools in Africa, only 168, and there are 1.2 million worldwide, but only 168 medical schools. And, of course, along with that, these, these people who will graduate may not get training, uh, further training. They may go out and become a family physician somewhere, but they're not really trained in any of the specialty areas to go out and meet the uh, specific needs that are needed there. So overall in Africa, there are 18 physicians per 100,000 populations, and poorest countries have significantly less. Compare that to the other more developed uh, countries. Uh, France uh, would be equivalent to the U.S., uh, 370, um, uh, 370 physicians per 100,000 uh, population. Uh, just some more numbers about surgeons, but the thing I want to show you, too, is that even in Rwanda, which is really having very, a very significant turnaround economically, but is also doing a, a tremendous job uh, uh, with um, – their health care, and they're partnering with m many medical schools uh, in the U.S., and there's, the U.S. medical schools are sending people over there to help develop and uh, further define uh, their uh, health care needs and to meet their needs that are there. But look at this. Here's, here's just looking at some of the surgeons that are out there. Uh, this was some data from a group called Casexa. Casexa is the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and Southern Africa. It's an organization that we partner with very strongly uh, because we ask our graduates to pass their um, their member examination, which is at the end of two years of the residency, and we want our residents to go on and become fellows in, the, in CASEXA, uh, and that's at the end of the five-year tra training program. So they take tests in order to accomplish these goals. But look at this. In some countries, particularly Malawi, where we just recently opened a program in Malawi, uh, there's only one surgeon per 1.2 uh, 1.4, or excuse me, uh, one surgeon per 2.4 million people. I mean, this is that's an overwhelming need. So you know, it's like eating an elephant. Where do you start? You just take it one bite at a time, and that's what we're trying to do uh, with the PACS program. And look at the CSRA is an area I used to live in around Augusta, and certainly Atlanta is very similar. But there's about one uh, to eight, nine thousand. Uh, uh, population. So it's a very high concentration of surgeons in that area, as is similar with Houston and most of the other uh, major cities uh, in the U.S. Think of this. For only 5 to 10 percent of women in need of a C-section are able to access this care. That's a very significant number, very low. 
So what do they do? They end up with complications from, from childbirth. And uh, some of those may end up having significant hemorrhage that cannot be addressed, uh, and they may die. Uh, the child may die, die as well. Uh, but in addition to that, they may end up with, with really what is a major scourge in, in Africa, which is that is a vesicovaginal fistulas, complicated to repair, and just uh, really isolates them totally away from society as a result of that particular injury. But only 15% will only get their hernias done. And the hernias we're talking about are not some nickel-dime hernia that, you know, someone's got a little bulge down in the groin. These are hernias which the, the scrotal sac is down to the knees. That's a real challenge for the surgeon to do and not something that somebody who has very little training goes out and tries to attempt. These can be very complicated management issues. But only 15% of the people have access to a simple uh, hernia repair. So we've got these problems in Africa. We certainly have war issues going on. Um, and so these, these, the people are dealing with that. The physician numbers are, in those countries are going down because people are leaving. They're concerned for their own families. And so you have migrations. You have poor, large numbers of poor people unable to get access. Either they access that uh, by, uh, by walking, sometimes a bike. If they're fortunate, they will get there by bus or by car. And down there on the left-hand side, uh, you know, we have our road warriors over there. One of the biggest problems in Africa now is trauma management of trauma, and if you've ever seen them driving, some of these cyclists, uh, I see them driving in Houston every day I go to work, and uh, they're, they're a little bit different, and uh, we'll weave in and out of traffic, And but everybody seems to be watching for them better in the U.S., but in Africa, they're almost prime targets, and so uh, motorcycle injuries are very common and one of the major sources of trauma that come in. But look at the right and lower side. You've got these overwhelming needs. Very few people working there to meet some of these uh, particular needs. So remember the number. 56 million people in sub-Saharan Africa need surgical care uh, today. So what does PACS do? I want to give you a little bit of background as how it started. This is Bangalow Hospital in 1994. Going from just a single dispensary building David Thompson was the surgeon there, and over the period of his going there in 1977 to 1994, uh, it uh, uh, increased tremendously, and he was very, very busy. Problem was, the closest hospital to him was 160 miles away, and the major capital where most of the physicians were was 300 miles away. So he really had a problem. Here he is, a great surgeon, doing, developing a great program there, providing great surgical care, but he's overwhelmed. I'm sure many of you have probably felt that way at different times, being overwhelmed with your practice, and uh, you're thinking, how am I going to sort this thing out? So uh, this is his situation. And he looked around, and as I mentioned, all these hospitals were quite a distance from where they were. He had really no surgical support uh, in the immediate area. So he asked God, what should he do? And so that's a simple question. You know, we, we, our prayer requests are, what, God, what do you want me to do? What are you calling me to do? How do you want me to function? 
And God told him, he said, you train him. Now, here he is, 300 miles from the capital city. And by the way, the capital city of Gabon uh, does not have a medical school, nor do they have surgical training or many uh, uh, medical specialty training uh, places in their country. But God tells him to train them. You know, it seems like an impossible uh, situation, especially since the fact that his, his background has not been in academic uh, surgery. Uh, he's not had experience of setting this thing up. And so, but God just told him to do that. So what he, at the uh, CMDA, CMDE conference in Kenya, which is held every two years in Kenya, uh, there is usually uh, this uh, meeting of continuing education. And at that meeting, he talked to some other surgeons. And they got together and talked about the problem that they had and what they should do about the whole situation. And uh, there were only about ten of them at that time. Uh, Jim Smith and I, uh, Jim's on the board as well as as myself, and we were there at that particular uh, meeting and uh, talked with the surgeons to see how we could collaborate to try and make this thing uh, come about. But it seemed like an impossible task. All the numbers I mentioned to you, overwhelming. What do you do? Where do you start? Well, actually, the first uh, surgeon uh, was, uh, was uh, st- uh, sur- surgery program started about a year or two later uh, in, uh, Gabon, in uh, Niger and eventually followed uh, with one in Gabon. And uh, that's the way the program actually uh, began. So just to tell a little bit about PACS, it's a rural-based training program. Uh, in African countries directed by board-certified surgeons. And it's Christ-centered. And and I want to emphasize that aspect of things because we're not doing surgical training just for surgical training. We're trying to develop leaders who are not only surgical leaders but are spiritual leaders in the community. So we do provide uh, a five-year biblical curriculum. We want them to be the, 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 not only the medical leaders in their area, but we want them to also be spiritual leaders. They get clinical and academic uh, study. Uh, people come, uh, visitors come, do some lecturing, work in the operating room with our residents. Uh, we give them examinations on a frequent basis, and certainly, as I mentioned, we do it every year. Uh, they all take the same examination every year. Uh, and so there's direct supervision preoperatively, intraoperatively, and postoperatively as well. So they're, they're, they're not just allowed to kind of go out and do their thing. It's really very similar to what we do here in the U- U.S. So we also teach them to do clinical research. And you say, well, why is that really important? I think it's a very important part of, of a surgical education because what it does is it really not only do you accumulate information about a specific subject, but you also help them develop critical thinking skills. And we do that here in the U.S., and we, we want them to think about their cases. We do not want them to do just rote memory, memorize a bunch of facts and regurgitate that for a test. We want them to be able to think their way through a given problem. And that's an, that's an issue here in the U.S. It's an issue worldwide, and we specifically answer that or try and address that problem uh, in Africa. 
And uh, the, the method of teaching in the past has been very frequently uh, related to, uh, to that of just rote memory. And so we're trying to uh, change that and improve that. And we're working with this, the College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa. They've been very uh, interested, and they're a very avant-garde type of organization, looking at ways to improve what they're doing and to uh, bring in some of these new challenges for their methods of training and so that they can improve the things that they're doing as well. And I mentioned the uh, MCS exams as becoming a member uh, of the uh, CASEXA organization in our institution. Uh, and then we mentioned the five-year biblical curriculum. We also emphasize ethical training. This is something we're doing in the U.S. We're realizing that with some of the backgrounds that many of our residents here in the U.S. have, ethics kind of get a little bit... Um, a little, little shaky. What about honesty? I mean, we take that as for granted as a Christian, but that's not true with everybody. And that's something we really want to see uh, deeply uh, inculcated into the uh, lives of our residents as they go out. So where are we? General surgery right now, we have 60 general surgery residents. Uh, we have one pediatric surgery resident. We have started a uh, orthopedic surgery program. We have uh, one, uh, one now and two will come in uh, January of 2016. We are starting a head and neck fellowship. And then you ask the question, well, aren't we getting very specialized? Well, yes, we are. The needs are in that direction. And I'm sure you've seen these gigantic uh, goiters that they have, these tremendous head and neck masses that they come in with that have been neglected for years and years. Well, we have on our board actually uh, uh, some people that are head and neck surgeons. That's their specialty. And one of them particularly is interested in starting uh, a program uh, at uh, Mabingo, which will hope, and then eventually, I guess, Ethiopia, but starting in Mabingo uh, very shortly. And we're hoping that that fellowship will begin in January of 2016. What about graduates? By uh, 2000, uh, the end of 2015, we'll have 46 graduates. By 2019, we'll have 99. By 2020, we'll have 115. Now, remember, I told you our original goal was to have 100, but we're hoping that as things expand, and we're expanding every year, and so these numbers may change next year or the next couple of years uh, as we graduate more residents and more programs are developed. As far as uh, different programs, we're in 10 mission hospitals. We have 11 residencies. And as I mentioned, nine general surgery residents, one orthopedic, one pediatric, one head and neck. And we're in eight countries. And we're looking to expand and we just recently brought on uh, a hospital in Malawi where there's tremendous needs. So here, we, here are the things that we're looking at and things that we need to be doing. And we need to be increasing the number of surgeons in Africa. This just gives you a map of some of the uh, hospitals and where they're located in Africa. And uh, we're in different places. Notice where we are. But notice, too, that we're also in Egypt. And the question always comes up, well, why are you in Egypt? They've got a lot of medical care. They, they do have a lot of medical care, but Christians can't get trained. 
because they're Christians. In a Muslim country, they don't get trained. So this hospital was started just north of Cairo, about an hour, an hour and a half north of Cairo, in a, in a Christian hospital, of which there are about seven or eight Christian hospitals in Egypt. And uh, Manouf, uh, the Harper Memorial Hospital, has been there for over 100 years. And uh, the, the, the program started there. And actually, David Thompson, who started uh, the program, uh, the PAX program in Gabon, has moved over and is starting that program and running that program at the present time. This just gives you some of the pictures uh, about the facilities that we have. Uh, notice up in the left-hand side, that's Tenwick Hospital, and next to it is Kajabi Hospital, probably two of our largest programs that are out there. Interestingly enough, we're actually doing heart sur- open heart surgery at Tenwick Hospital. and not, It's the only hospital in our program that we're doing, but the need for heart surgery is real. And uh, Russ White, who is there at that hospital, who's a uh, general thoracic surgeon, is doing the heart surgery there, and he's bringing people over from Brown University in Vanderbilt uh, to help him and assist with him when he does these types of surgery. Kajabi, another large hospital, has pediatrics, uh, pediatric uh, fellowship there as well. On the right is uh, Galmi Hospital in Niger. Uh, Harper Memorial Hospital in Egypt is down on the left, and uh, the one down on the right uh, is uh, our, one of our more recent hospitals in uh, Tanzania. Uh, the, the one on the left is a hospital in uh, uh, Malawi, just a program we started. Mabingo is another large program that we have to do a lot of general surgery, a lot of thoracic surgery. They have orthopedics there. Uh, the Head and Neck Fellowship will start in that area, and uh, it's just continuing uh, to grow. Uh, and there's just a great need. And certainly down, uh, down on the uh, left, uh, left-hand side is uh, uh, one of our hospitals in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, which is the Mayan uh, Sun Christian Hospital. It's a Korean hospital. Uh, and then uh, in Gabon itself, and then our hospital down in uh, uh, Soto, uh, Ethiopia as well. This is where our residents come from. And uh, they come from that. They're now in ten, going back to ten countries. When our residents finish, we ask them to pay back a year for year and to go to a place that we would mutually approve of. And we're finding now, interestingly enough, that our residents are having trouble finding places to work. We say, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's not a mission hospital. Maybe they don't have a need. Maybe there's a government hospital. We're willing to work with that type of a situation if necessary. But the problem is the government hospitals don't have any money for doctors. So they, they're oftentimes trying to go back to maybe their home country, which many of them do, but they're having trouble finding positions. And so we're, we're concerned about that, and we're looking into that issue. How do we solve this problem? We've been able to place all of our residents so far, but we want to be able to uh, make this a, a better uh, situation uh, for them. So I looked at some of the things. I said, well, look, you know, let's just take the number 100 surgeons by the year 2020. I looked at that and I said, okay, let's make some assumptions. You know, what if they work 30 years? That's about an average work span, 40 years in the U.S. or Europe, and surgeons there will probably work very similarly as well. And supposing they did 400 cases a year, you know, that's a, 
about the number, 400, 500 cases a year the general surgeon is going to do. Some will do many more. Uh, and in Africa, they will do many more than 400. But I took a low number just to kind of give you some idea. You know, if they worked for a lifetime, 100 surgeons working for a lifetime, uh, they would have a total of 1.2 to 1.6 million cases that they will have uh, performed performed by the past graduates. And I think it's important that we keep in mind, okay, there's a great need, you know, 56 million cases need to be done, and we're maybe doing 1 million of them, but how's this going to grow? And certainly with your help, it's going to go grow as well. And that's what we're really looking for. What do we do in the operating room? You know, it's just like a program here in the U.S. Our basic language for our program is English. All our hospitals are trained in English. Now, certainly on the west side, we have the, uh, the francophones there, and so French is, is used a lot in that hospital as well. But it's primarily English because all their tests are in English. And if they go internationally, their tests are in English. So it's important that they learn English. But the hands-on training, working with the resident, teaching them, not only giving them, increasing their fund of knowledge, but increasing their judgment. You know, you may know how to do 30, 30 hernia repairs, but what hernia repair do you use at this particular time under these particular conditions? That's where an experienced surgeon can really be a great help and you can uh, help these guys really develop. I mentioned things about critical thinking skills and certainly patient assessment. You know, it's, it's been fun for me as I go, and I, I come back to really the basics of medical care, you know, history and physical examination and a stethoscope, and I still know where it goes in my ear and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, and getting a CVC, and I'm lucky I got a urinalysis maybe. Some of these hospitals have more sophisticated laboratories. And some places you can get CAT scans, but not all the places. Uh, you know, whereas here in the U.S., you know, history and physical, history may be a little bit there. Physical exam is kind of unfortunately going out the window. And instead we get a CVC and a CAT scan in the emergency room. You know, these people don't have access, so it really depends on the surgeon. And the quality of the surgeon going, I think, has to really get back to his basic skill sets and be able to teach these residents how to do that. Uh, it's it's uh, very important that they get a variety of things, not only in the wards, on the in, in the operating room, but also uh, in the clinics. So, you know, I mentioned uh, the fact uh, that they have these examinations. We, we also give them basic science. We teach them basic science course. Um, we run it every two years. It's usually run at Brackenhurst uh, Conference Ground in Kenya. And, and for two weeks, we go through many of the basic sciences. It's, it's interesting. It's not only a requirement of us, but also a requirement of CASEXA, the College of Surgeons East Central and Southern Africa. They require that of all their residents that are involved in training programs in their region. And, of course, then the older residents tend, will go to the CMDE conference that occurs uh, every two years uh, and in Kenya or it's in Greece, wherever it might be. We like them to hold morbidity, mortality conferences, grand rounds. Uh, you know, this 
outcomes data business is a big issue here in the U.S., and we're trying to get that in. What about morbidity? Why did that patient develop a wound infection? You know, that's a big issue in my hospital, you know, and I see around here we have places that you can wash your hands, and I think that's great. That's great. Now I'll go by these places, and I'll just stick my hand out and get some stuff to clean my hands. Now, I may not be in the operating room or the hospital, but, you know, that, that's the type of thing. We want our residents to become uh, aware of these potential problems to improve their surgical uh, management of some of these papers. And we do want them to do research, uh, as I said, for the critical uh, thinking skill part of it particularly. But we have this five-year discipleship thing in which they, they not only study the Bible, we have a blue and a green book, which is, which is really a, a, a spiritual curriculum. One of our uh, people, we have, we have not only an academic dean, Bill Wood, who is actually here with us uh, today, who's former chair uh, at Emory University in surgery, uh, but we also have Stan Key. And I don't know if you know who Stan is. I think he's spoken at this conference in the past. But Stan is our spiritual dean. And we feel that this is an equal importance to our academic dean because we can't lose these people on a spiritual basis. They need to grow not only academically but spiritually as well. We want them to pray with the patients. We want them to learn how to share their faith with the patients. I remember one time I was making rounds in Ethiopia, and uh, we, were, we were coming in. It was one of those days where it was rainy, and, and the, you know, there was dirt on the floor and, and all this stuff. And we had many patients to see. had a big OR schedule for the day. And we came along to this, this man. And, uh, you know, we just started talking about his, his medical problem. And uh, then someone, someone in, in the group that was with us said, yeah, you, know, you know, started asking about how, where he was spiritually. And he raised some questions. And so another question was asked, you know, well, do you know Jesus? And the guy said no. And we said, oh, hold on just a minute. Let's, let's have someone talk. We went on and made rounds, continued our rounds, and one of our residents dropped off and spoke with that, that particular patient that day. And he accepted Christ. And that was exciting. We moved on the same day to see another patient. Same issue came up. Do you know Jesus? No, don't know Jesus. Do you want to know? Well, yeah, I want to know. We, another resident dropped out of, the, out of the group and talked with him about Jesus. He didn't become a believer, not then, but hopefully at a later time. But the thing is, we want our residents to get out there and to treat them well medically and spiritually be able to deal with them and share Christ uh, with them, and not only our residents, but in everything that they're doing. Just to show you a couple of pictures here of some of our residents. Uh, the person on the right is now in Madagascar, went back to a hospital there in Madagascar, and uh, the hospital was just about ready to close. And uh, he was able to get a very active surgical program together. The hospital began to uh, grow, not only patient-wise, but financially became uh, a place where uh, they were able to survive out of that particular situation and become a major leader uh, spiritually as well as uh, in a surgical practice. The person on the left is in Angola. And these are the first, come the first two residents that were with us. They were originally uh, in uh, Gabon. 
Now, many of you may have seen the cover of Time magazine over the last year or so. Uh, Jerry Brown there in the middle is actually one of our PAX graduates. And he, he is from Liberia, went back to Liberia, and got involved in the Ebola crisis and, is run, and has been running the Ebola unit there in, uh, in uh, uh, Monrovia at the Elwa Hospital. And interestingly enough, he, he, Elwa Hospital is working with Doctors Without Borders. A very interesting thing, they're working together in the Ebola crisis, and they're bringing that under control in that country. But I'll tell you a story. One, one time uh, they, they were uh, going in and, uh, to see patients, and they always would pray with doctors, without border doctors. They, they would pray with them before they went in. And that was just routine. And one day, they, I guess they were just kind of busy and, you know, things got to be, you know, kind of pressed and everything. And they got all suited up and they were ready to go in. They hadn't prayed. And one of the doctors without borders uh, said, hey, we can't go in there. We haven't prayed yet. You know, where's your testimony? Where's your testimony? You know, do you do that in your, in your hospital here in the U.S.? These guys are doing that out there, and certainly they prayed as they went in. Now, Martin Salia, you probably know Martin Salia. You've, uh, you've seen his a picture, too, uh, because he was one of our surgeons in Sierra Leone. And uh, he was one of our PAX graduates. As you know, he came back to the U.S. with overwhelming uh, Ebola, sepsis, and all the things that go along with that, and he died. And, you know, there were only ten surgeons in Sierra Leone, and two of them have died from the result of Ebola. But, you know, when asked about the situation, he was extremely reluctant to leave Sierra Leone. He didn't want to leave. He said, this is my home. This is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to serve my people. That's the kind of commitment that we want all of our residents to have. Here's a picture of our newest hospital, Malawi, uh, the Malamuha Hospital there. And up on the left, you'll see the picture. That's the uh, government officials coming in, starting the new program, wanting people to be aware. Remember I said there are only one doctor for every 2.4 million people. We need more programs certainly going on in Malawi. And then one of our uh, recent graduates, one of our recent graduates, has gone back to that hospital and is working on staff. What we're trying to do, we want to graduate these guys, get them out into mission, other mission hospitals and national hospitals if necessary. But we want the mission hospital to be supplied first. But we also want them to come back to our program. And we want them to lead and to work in our programs. Just show you a picture there of the Le Chef de Chirurgie in Niger. That's actually our very first PAX resident, in the, which was a program that was started by Harold Adolf, who I think spoke yesterday at this uh, program. Uh, and he, um, he started actually the very first program, and this was our very first graduate. Uh, he's from, uh, from Niger. His wife uh, is from uh, Nigeria, went to Niger as a missionary, and they met and uh, now have uh, three boys, and he is one of our uh, directors of one of our hospitals there uh, in Galmi and doing, doing a great job. Great, great person. You'd really just love to meet him uh, as a, just an individual. 
These are uh, two of our, the one on the left is Eric Hansen. Eric Hansen is a pediatric surgeon at Kajabi Hospital. And on the, on the right is one of our recent graduates. He is on the Kajabi faculty now. And you can see we're trying to incorporate these people back in uh, to these programs. But these pro people are just being introduced into fellowship with the uh, College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa, where we've had a very close uh, uh, working relationship. This is our hospital in Egypt. And, and here you can see the residents uh, that are there. Uh, I'll, sh I'll show you this. Uh, well, I don't want to trip over this stuff. Uh, this is, this is the, the faculty and the residents there, David Thompson on the right. Uh, but... Um, There are two new uh, faculty that are going to come on with us. And then Sharif Hanna and his wife in the second row. Sharif is actually Egyptian by birth and uh, did some training in, uh, in Egypt and then went to the U.S. and Canada. And his career has been in Canada. He has now gone back uh, to Egypt to serve his people there. And we're excited about that and the three residents up in the back. But we pray with our residents. We're in a Christian hospital in a Muslim country, and in this city is actually a very conservative Muslim uh, community. And they actually have, they actually have a, a Muslim, I think they have a Muslim seminary there as well. But they, uh, they come to the hospital. Muslims come to the hospital because they know they can get really good care, and the people care for them while they're there. They care about them. And uh, our residents, we're training our residents to work with the, uh, with the patients. We pray for them, and they pray for their patients, and we pray with their patients uh, as well. So what does PACS need to go forward? First thing we need, and probably the most important thing of all, is certainly prayer. And we need your prayer and involvement. We need to know we need to have a clear vision where God is working. Certainly there are people out there that would like us to come in and develop a program in their institution. But is that where God's leading us? Is that where God is working? Don't know. But that's where we need help uh, with prayer. Prayer for our program directors and faculties and residents. We need, we need pe more people to come in and grow the programs, grow the ones we already have, shore up what we already have and develop new ones going forward. And certainly our graduates, all of our graduates are staying in Africa, all of them. And uh, some of them are going to very, very impoverished areas. And they don't have very good facilities in some of those areas, but God has led them to those particular uh, places. And, you know, they may not they may even have difficulty getting a CBC but they're doing surgery. They're able to get many things done in the places that they're going. So we need to pray for them as they're, as they're going out, and certainly more residents. You know, we were talking the other day about re resident recruitment. How do we do that in a continent as large as Africa? How do you do that? Transportation is not great. It's very hard to go from Malawi to Kenya, for instance, to get interviewed. How do you do that? How do you select these people? 
what's what's the best way to approach that? We're dealing with that problem, and we just we just ask that you would pray as we go through this process that we get God's person for that particular uh, position in that residency. And certainly, we're like every organization; we need, need money, we need financial help as well. Uh, but I think that. The most important thing we need from everyone is really prayer, and we need people. And so I just uh, encourage you to get involved. You know, PACS again changed the spiritual and physical health of a continent. Look, at, look again, look again at the calling. Look at the look at look at David's calling. David's calling was, you know, train him. Here he is out in the middle of nowhere. Where? How am I going to train him? But God directed him to do this. But look at Isaiah when he was called. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You know, I think this is really, this is a calling for all of us. And, you know, I don't know what God's calling you to do. But think about this as you make your plans, either in medical school, residency, or you're in some surgical practice of any specialty. We need your help. So come and join us. All right. I'll open this up to any questions that you might have. Yes. So if you wanted to go and help in an area where there's a lot of difficult needs, say, like I'm OBGYN and fistula repair is something I have an interest in, but I have no experience so how can somebody like me go and say I'm going to help train other people in something I don't really know how to do well? Well, there are two major fistula hospitals in, in Africa. One's in Nigeria, and then there's the fistula hospital in Addis Ababa, which is probably most highly recognized for the work that they do. And we've had, we've had people who have gone there and spent a period of time, and they, they will – they encourage people to come, learn, learn how they do it. It's not just the surgical procedure itself. It's the preoperative management and postoperative care, which is very important. My wife and I went through that hospital. You know, we went through during the rainy season, and it was pristine clean. We went through the ward. Dirty feet, unfortunately, and there were people coming after me just cleaning the floors. And, you know, they've, they've done a wonderful job there and have had wonderful results. And I would encourage you. Uh, I always thought that was something I wanted to learn to do, uh, even though I'm a general surgeon. Uh, I thought I wanted to learn because I thought it was, it was an extremely complicated operation. And I just thought it would be a challenge to kind of take it on. So, you know. I'm getting more towards the end of my career, and that might not be something I'm going to be doing, but it might be something you want to be thinking about. Yes? What kind of infrastructure work did you need to do in these 10 hospitals to get the PACU and the ICU, if they have it, and the post-op ward where you need them to be to teach the type of surgery you want to do? Well, those are all things that are needed. We need, we need ICUs. We need nurses who work in ICUs, um, you know, um, nursing care, nurse practitioners, um, all those types of specialty areas can be extremely helpful. And just as they here in the U.S. as well, and uh, that, that's something that the people can get involved. You know, we're talking about surgery residency, but, you know, surgery residency training, you know, and surgery itself involves everything. You know, it involves laboratory. It, allows, uh, it uh, just helps have good pathology. I see one of our major 
pathology help helpers out there who come to our programs and teach our residents pathology. You know, how do they do wet preps? How do they look at certain things? And then through some electronic exchange, we can send some slides back to them. These are things we need, but we need people on site. Uh, and Babingo, we do have a pathologist there. And, uh, boy, he's, he's, he's busy just doing a whole bunch of things. So, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, that operation giving back, which is part of the American College of Surgeons uh, program, uh, we've been involved with that some. Some they're very enthusiastic about what they do uh, and what we're what we're doing, and are very supportive of that. Uh, but they have not. Uh, uh, the, the ones we really want, we want Christian surgeons, and uh, it's a mixed bag sometimes when they come uh, through that organization. But that's why I think, for instance, if you're doing short term, I think it's important that you go through some organization like World Medical Missions because they 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 have a tremendous application process. You got to share your testimony, and they make it very clear as to what their their position is and is ours as well. And so it's it's a good filtering system. Uh, you know, different uh, organizations that uh, missionary sending agencies will send people out, and they will do a lot of the filtering. But we want Christians to go. Uh, so that's the most important thing. But they've been very supportive. Uh, Operation Giving Back has been very supportive of what we do. Yes? I guess you mentioned a couple fellowships that are kind of starting up, and I'm kind of curious where you see that going or whether that's really kind of up in the air. I mean, you mentioned TNT, you mentioned the pediatric. Um, is there a hope to start more of these fellowships, or is there still just a huge need for Yes. The answer to that is yes. <laughs> yes. And we're anxious to start the specialty fellowship. You know, it's a personnel problem. You know, if we had lots and lots of people with different specialties, we'd start a jillion of these things. If we got the money for it, we'd be able to do it. You know, but, yes, we're trying to do those types of things. Like in orthopedics, you know, one of the uh, people on our board is an orthopod uh, in Atlanta. And he um, he's working with the people at Kajabi to start that orthopedic program. They have one in training now, and they're going to have two more, which will begin in 2016. And so, you know, the program is, is growing. Okay, it's only one place, one hospital in, in Kenya. What well, we want to do more. We want to train. So our guys do get trained. Our general surgery residents, they get, as I said, they get training in the skin and its contents, you know, and everything that's in there we got to work on. You know, I was in Ethiopia, and some, uh, there was a motor vehicle accident uh, uh, that came in, and the person had obvious head injury. I haven't, I haven't done a burr hole. I haven't done a burr hole since residency, Okay. In my hospital, if I considered a burr hole, I'd be fired. But, other than, but, but there, I'm the only guy on the block. You know, I'm, only, I'm only, the only guy probably within 100 miles that could do a, a burr hole. Well, yes, I could do a burr hole, but uh, where do you place the burr hole? You know, all these types of questions. We actually had one guy who was there who happened to be a plastic surgeon who had done a burr hole, and he did, the, he did the surgery. So he had more experience than I did. 
court isn't there postoperatively to take care of this patient. So I guess that was to more direct my question. What subspecialists can the hospitals handle there? In other words, you know, if I bring my transplant surgeon, can we care for the patient postoperatively in the hospital? Well, you know, a transplant surgeon actually is a general surgeon to begin with, and they do a lot of general surgery in their practice. I know that you're just choosing one particular person. But, you know, if we know that someone's coming to one of these hospitals, most of these hospitals are able to do, like orthopedics, they do pediatric surgery, they do some head and neck, but it needs to be really developed a lot further in a lot of these places. That's why we're developing the fellowship. So we want people of all the specialties. We want anesthesiologists. We need nurse anesthetists. We need every specialty. So, yes, they can come in. Maybe they will start with not as much as they're used to here in the U.S., but that's how we grow the program. And we let people here know what the need is, and hopefully they will help with equipment. And Bryce Nattier, who's there in the back, actually just has finished his residency in general surgery and is planning, and now I guess it was January or end of December, go to Togo. Well, he'll first go to language training in France to learn French, and then he's going to Togo, the northern part of Togo, which is the Muslim part of the country. But, Bryce, maybe you could just share. You were able to get a lot of equipment by talking to people about different types of even orthopedic equipment, which is something you've not been involved. Why don't you share a little bit about that? I think the development. Sorry. Bryce is a great surgeon. He can do just about anything you want him to do. But, you know, what the limitation is, is the person who comes. The equipment will come. But if the person goes, things change. You know, they come back. They talk about what their need is. Hey, you know, I need an orthopedic table. I need this. I need that. You know, I need different types of orthopedic screws or things like this, you know, those things will come. If you've got a well-trained person, he will find the equipment to get the job done that he needs to get done. So that's why I encourage all the specialists to really get involved. may not be there today, but tomorrow, as they encourage and show us and show other people the need, they'll be involved. Yes? Say that again. So I'm a fourth-year general surgery resident here. Could you describe briefly the sort of transitional timeline for becoming affiliated and becoming a part of PAC? Or maybe Bryce could. Yeah, sure. I think you certainly speak more than that. I think you guys like to see like at least a year out of fellowship or out of residency, correct, as far as have some experience. But they oftentimes have post-residency fellows that are, out of training that are working with in the PACS programs as faculty. 
So I think it, it varies. Uh, but certainly if you're interested, apply, and, and they can get some more information on that. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, we're finding that 80% of resident applicants in our program, and I think it's on a national level, as well as uh, at the medical school level, have a strong, strong interest in global health. And uh, this is an exciting trend that we're seeing. And I would encourage you, even in your residency, to talk to the residency advisor uh, about going to one of these places for, say, a month. I know, I know in your fifth year it gets really tricky uh, because of just the requirements of the uh, uh, RRC and everything. But uh, it's important that, that at least you would go out. And if not, I would consider, I would consider uh, after your residency uh, the, uh, the post uh, the uh, uh, World Medical Missions has a uh, post-residency uh, training, not training program per se. They go actually, they're board-certified surgeons that are going out. Uh, but get your boards. Uh, that's what, Pat, uh, that's what uh, Bryce did. He got his boards. He's ready to go. Uh, and keep that connection, you know, with, the, with all this stuff in the U.S. But I, I just recommend that you kind of go out and, and see some of these places. And you'll get a better feel for what's needed. <laughs> So, you know, I just encourage you to get involved. You're thinking about it. You're asking questions about it. Um, and as far as residency is concerned, the RRC now will allow people, and they will get credit for overseas programs. They have certain requirements they put on us, and, and most of our hospitals meet those RRC requirements. And so that's important so that, you know, you could go to different, different uh, places. All right, I think we're over for the time, but uh, thank you for coming, and I just uh, wish you well. Look at my last slide. Come and join us. God's calling you. Great. Right.